So as you sit, let yourself be at ease as you listen. Um, in a way, it is a kind of reflection. It's not that the teachings or these words are necessarily right or wrong as much as perhaps a reminder at best to things that you know already that are true. Um, And so listen in that way to sense what is of value and the rest of it, just let it go by. I was reflecting on what to speak about tonight. In part, I was thinking about the state of the world, um, something that I do talk about pretty regularly with concern. Um, But then things got turned in a different way for me. I had a conversation with one of my dearest friends um, who used to be a senior teacher here at Spirit Rock, Robert Hall, um, who's now living down in Mexico in Todos Santos. And I think Robert's 86 or something, 87 maybe. Um, And he's been pretty sick and he's nearly dying. So I call him and I say, Robert, have you died yet? He'll say, no, 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 not yet. He said, I'm I'm hoping it's coming, you know, because it's not easy. He's got heart problems and lung problems and pain and all kinds of other things like that. But we talk. I say, so so what's going to happen when you die, Robert? You know, here you've been this Dharma teacher, and he says, I don't know. It's a mystery, but I do know that I'm not this body. He said, I've had enough out-of-the-body experiences to know that this isn't who I am, that there's something vast and more mysterious and not just the identity that we take in this human body as the end of the story. And we kind of play out different scenarios of, and so forth. Um, and mostly at the end of our conversations, he's just grateful. He said, you know, in the end, all that really matters is that we love each other. Not that complicated, is it? So spiritual practice um, begins in some way with some very deep, and we could call them sacred questions. Who are you? What is this life? What happens when you die? I mean... You know, I remember Carlos Castaneda's teaching from Don Juan where he says, um, the trouble is you think you have time, you know, and we don't actually know. So we live in this, in this mystery. Um, and then the Buddhist teachings say uh, uh, there's an invitation to that which is beyond birth and death, sometimes called the deathless. Now, what could that mean? So here we are. It's a late summer evening. Um, As you came, you know, the sun was starting to set. There's these beautiful golden hills and valley, San Geronimo Valley. And in each of us, there's an appreciation for beauty, this earth, along with its difficulty, and a longing for connection and wholeness. Um, We also have our suffering, and we want to somehow find a way to live that reduces that suffering that brings us a kind of liberation or ease or joy or we want to we want to love better or live more fully or be more awake in some deep way Um, especially in a society that's so speedy I think it was Rollo May who said um, it's ironic that um, human beings seem to run faster when they've lost their way And that could be so for a lot of our society as well. That it's moving really fast, but where where are we going? Or maybe our question is um, how to live fully. Or maybe our question, those deep spiritual questions, are about justice, dignity, respect. Especially in a world where there's so much conflict, Racism, divisiveness, tribalism, people mistreating one another. How do we find justice and dignity and what are the teachings about it? One of my favorite stories that comes from long ago in the time of the Buddha 
the Buddha's attendant, Ananda, who was known to be a very warm-hearted man. People really loved Ananda. He was a, a kind of... Um, he was the gracious front man for the Buddha, basically, when people come and say, I want to see him. And Ananda was the person who kind of tended him. It also happened that Ananda was apparently quite good-looking, but that's, that's another thing. <laughs> so Ananda, the attendant to the Buddha, was sent by the Blessed One on a mission, and on returning, passed by a well near a village and saw a young outcast woman named Pakati and asked her for water to drink. Now, as a monk, you can't ask for anything except water. You have to bring your bowl in silence and either people feed you or they don't. But the only thing you're really allowed to ask for is water. And Pakati said, O oh monk, I am too lowly born, too humbly born to give you water to drink. Do not ask this of me, lest your holiness be contaminated for I am of the untouchable caste. Imagine a child being born that way, to say you're lower than anybody else, and if your shadow falls on the food of the higher caste, then they can't even eat it, because it pollutes it. Um, and Ananda replied, I ask not for caste, but for water, please. And Pakati's heart leapt joyfully, and she gave Ananda water to drink. And he thanked her kindly and went away, but she followed him and at a distance. And having heard that he was a disciple of the Buddha, she went to the Blessed One and said, Please help me live in the place where your disciple dwells so that I may see and care for him, for I've come to love Ananda. She fell in love with this man. You know how that happens. <laughs> and the Blessed One understood the emotions of her heart and said, Pakati, your heart is full of love, but you do not understand your own sentiments. It is not Ananda that you love, but his kindness. Accept then the kindness you've seen him practice toward you and practice it toward others. And though, Pakati, you are said to be born of low caste, you will be a model for the noble men and noble women of this land. Live a path of justice and right, righteousness and you will outshine the royal glory of kings and queens. And there's just so, so much beauty in this story because it's really a story of respect and dignity and seeing this secret beauty that's there in every being, no matter what the conditioning is. Now, in many ways, this question, who are we, who am I, is central to awakening. In India, they say, speaking of little baby um, that was just here, that the, the babies will sing a little song, do not let me forget who I am. And then the second verse is, oh, I'm forgetting already. <laughs> who are we really? You know? Um, story. This from a Remarkable book, if you don't know it, called Tattoos on the Heart by Father Greg Boyle, who writes about his work with gang, gang kids in Los Angeles. He started Homeboy Industries and just remarkable stories. Anyway, he's working with these group of young kids and this guy swaggers in and Father Greg says, this is some camp where these kids have been sent to. And he says, what's your name? And the kid scowls and says, Sniper. And Father Greg says, Okay, look, I've been down this block before. I have a feeling you didn't pop out of your mom and she took a look, one look at your ass and said, Sniper, so come on, dog, what's your name? <laughs> Gonzalez, he relents a little. Okay, now, son, I know the staff here call you by your name. That last name, I'm not down with that. Tell me, mijo, you know, what's your mom call you? Caprón. <laughs> There's even the slightest flicker of innocence in his answer. Oh, no, son, I'm looking for birth certificate name. The kid softens. I can tell it's happening. But there's embarrassment and a newfound vulnerability. Napoleon, he manages to squeak out, pronouncing it in Spanish. Wow, I say, that's a fine, noble, historic name. But I'm almost positive that when you're 
Shatifa calls you. She doesn't use the whole nine yardas. Come on, Mejito. Do you have an apado? What's your mom call you? Forgive my bad Spanish. Then I watch him go to some far distant place, a location he's not visited in some time. His voice, body language, and whole being are taking on a new shape right before my eyes. Sometimes his voice so quiet I lean in. Sometimes when my mom's not mad at me, she calls me Napito. And I watch this kid move, transform from sniper to Gonzalez, to Cabron, to Napoleon, to Napito. We all just want to be called by the name our mom uses when she's not pissed off at us. But this is really a question, who are we? Because we, we, we take on all kinds of personas, right? And then other people have these views of who we are. And the practice of mindful loving awareness and of loving kindness and compassion, the practices that we do, invite a shift of identity for ourselves and for the way we relate to and are in the world that we're a part of. And they invite us to step from that sense of separateness and protectedness that, that the kid was describing, described so beautifully, it's sometimes called the body of fear, the small sense of self, and all the conditioning of somebody told you who you're supposed to be. And then you believe that stuff, right? So there's the cartoon by Jules Pfeiffer, four panels, and a man is sitting there, sort of reflectively, maybe a little disconsolately, and he said, I inherited my father's uh, philosophy and way of thinking about things. Next panel. I inherited my father's um, style and attitude to the world. Next thing. Um, I inherited my father's uh, interests and you know, way of acting. In the fourth panel. And I inherited my mother's contempt for my father. Right? <laughs> Summed up in a few little panels. Like, who are you? Right? You get all of that. And it turns out, as you meditate, that you see all these layers, all the things you think you are and people told you are and you're supposed to be, and you get to step out of that into awareness itself. You have your trauma. Everybody does. Everybody's been betrayed and everybody's betrayed somebody. Anybody not been betrayed? Raise your hand. You can have your, you know, $10 back or whatever it was. (laughs) You have your trauma. But the idea is not not to be too loyal to your suffering. Because it's part of your life and it needs to be honored. But you're something bigger than this. And so the invitation of meditation um, is really to allow that identity to start to get stripped away in some way, not in a painful way, but to see through it. And I think about my teacher Deepama Barua in Calcutta, who was one of the great meditation masters and yogis of India, quite remarkable woman. She'd lived through so much suffering, the death of two of her children, then later the death of her husband, um, terrible illness, and that motivated her to meditate when she finally did. Um, and she realized that she couldn't count on anything that was sort of the external things. She had what almost everyone has at some point in their life. She had a death-rebirth experience, that all that she took, that she believed mattered and who she was, somehow was taken away or she knew it wasn't who she was. Um, And she had to find something else. This is from... Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh. Let me see if I can find you down here. Where are you? This body is not me. I'm not limited by this body. I'm life without boundaries. I've never been born and I've never died. Look at the ocean and the sky filled with stars. Since before time, I've been free. Birth and death are only doors through which we pass. Sacred thresholds on our journey, a game of hide-and-seek. So laugh with me, hold my hand, let us say goodbye. We'll meet again soon, tomorrow we meet in every day. 
because this is who we are. Now you listen to that and it sounds kind of beautiful but distant in a way. What does he mean? He said, I was living in my hermitage in a monastery in the hills of Vietnam and it was a year after my mother died. He was very close to his mother and he said, I grieved for that whole year very deeply. And then one night, in the middle of the night, I woke up and the full moon was shining in the window onto my face. He said, and I had the sense as the moonlight was caressing me that it wasn't just the moon, but that it was also my mother. I had a sense that she was there with me. And I got up to walk along the tea plantation and I had the feeling as I did that it wasn't my feet that were making steps in the damp soil under the moonlight, but it was our feet. It was my mother's feet and my grandparents' feet and my ancestors' feet and that I was just a part of this huge stream of life that was not limited to this body. And I knew that my mother had never died, that I could never lose her because we were one, we were together in this. Does this make sense to you? You've had this experience, some of you anyway. And when you remember it, something remarkable starts to happen. A kind of courage and fearlessness and understanding. Thomas Merton, the Christian mystic, um, was walking down the street in Louisville at 4th Street and Main, I believe it was. He said there was, no, it was 4th and Walnut in the center of the shopping district. And right now there's a, there's a monument there. It's the only monument that I know that the government has put up um, to a mystical experience. But there it is, Thomas Merton's experience. And I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people and that they were mine and I theirs, and we could not be alien to one another. It was like waking from a dream of separateness uh, and, and, and uh, monastic holiness. The sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and joy, I laughed out loud. I saw the secret beauty of everyone that was passing, the only problem was I wanted to fall down and worship each one as they went by. No more need for war, cruelty, or greed when we could see each other in this way. This is really the miracle that each person that passed me is walking around shining like the sun. It's not just a conjecture. If you actually do something very dangerous like sit and look in someone's eyes for like five or ten minutes. Woo! We can't do it, you know. Weird things happen. Until as the face starts to change and like, who are you? Who are you? Back in there, you know. And you start to see that you're not the body. That there's some spirit that was born in. And when you meet someone who sees you in that way, just as Father Greg saw this young man and knew that he wasn't all the kind of act that he had. Well, in India, it's called the the glance of mercy. When uh, I spend time with Ramdas, dear friend, and he talks about his guru, Neem Karoli Baba, and he said he was there and he was you know, doing his Ramdas act, former Harvard professor and traveler and LSD maven and all the things. And, 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 you know, he carried both his pride and his shame, like we all do. Um, and he said, my guru looked at me with so much love, I could hardly believe it. Like, why would anyone want to love me in this way? And in fact, he tells the story about after he was with his guru for a long time and kind of learned many things and was ready to come back to the U.S. or his guru was sending him back. He said, now you need to go teach other people. And Ramdas said, I'm still uncooked. I still feel so imperfect. I feel, you know, so much imperfection. And he said his guru got up from the little wooden bench where he sat 
stood up and peered up and down around us very closely and then walked around to the other side and one side and peered and went to the back and looked at him and took about three or four minutes and kind of looking him over from his feet to his head and then sat down and looked at him and said, I see no imperfections. I see no imperfections. And that glance of mercy, that moment when somebody looks at you and sees your beauty and your worthiness and who you really are in spite of, you know, all the personality we have and all the things we've done, that, that all drops away. And what happens is then you get to hold your identity, but you hold it a bit more lightly. Now, I don't mean by this that you get a pass, okay, that you can do the spiritual bypass and run thing. Okay, we're all shining like the sun, hallelujah, and I don't have to deal with anything, all right? As um, I think it was Auden, the poet, who said you need to love your crooked neighbor with your own crooked heart, right? We're kind of in it together. And as you learn how to sit and be present with loving awareness and a kind of fearlessness, and fearlessness doesn't mean you won't be afraid, but that you can be present even for the fear, then you feel the layers of things that are hard for you or that you've run from, your loneliness, the grief and tears that have been waiting because the unfinished business of the heart doesn't show itself to you. Sit quietly. You know, and the Lakota Su, they say that grief is the emotion that brings you closest to the gods. That it's the tears that actually open the heart. You feel your own measure of pain. <coughs> Excuse me. You sense all of these things and honor them. But they're not who you are. They're a part of life experience. And they need to be held in some beautiful way uh, and honored. Um, Because until we can sit with the measure of pain and the tears that we have, we also aren't free. I read repeatedly this passage from James Baldwin, bless him, where he writes, I imagine one of the reasons that people cling to their hate and ignorance so stubbornly is because they sense that once hate is gone, they'll be forced to deal with their own pain. And so if we can't sit with our measure of tears and our insecurity and our fears and our grief and longing, then we project it on others. The Mexicans, you know, the Muslims, the immigrants, the black people, the brown people, the yellow people, the gays, whatever. When I was young, it was the communists. They're coming back around now, right? It's the enemy du jour. Because as a culture, we can't deal with the human insecurity that is our lot. And love our life instead of be so frightened about it. But to be able to establish ourselves in meditation means to sit with loving awareness and say, yes, this is our human nature. All of it not bypass it, and yet as you quiet your mind and open your heart, you also discover that all that stuff isn't who you really are. It's part of the journey, it gives you lessons, it makes you weep and laugh and so forth. But it's not you. Identity is a really interesting property of consciousness. I mean, we don't talk about this, you know, we talk about the stock market, right? or we talk about real estate, or we talk about medicine, or health, or, you know, creativity. But who talks about who we are? This mystery. Sakaya Ditti is a quality in the mind that in which consciousness identifies with something. So I can demonstrate it. If I say, this hand is me, and this is something I want to feel, I can feel the hardness of the ring on my finger. I can feel these nails that are a little rough that need to be clipped. So this is me and that's the object that I'm feeling, right? Now, I'm going to say, this is me. And I'll say, oh, 
these nails, they need to be clipped too, and the skin is a little rough, maybe I need a little goop or whatever that stuff is, right? Um, you know, and now this is me and this is what I'm feeling. Or um, I can identify myself with my body, but in a tragic way, if I lose some part of my body in an accident, I think this is my hand, but if I were to lose it, I'm still me without it, right? So I had that identity, I have to let it go. I can identify with my family. Some of you might want to do that, some of you might not want to, the way families go, right? I can identify with my gender, or my sexual orientation, or my tribe, or my people, you know? Or my political point of view. And when I'm with my parents, when I was, I was their son. When I'm with my daughter, I'm a father. And my identity switches all the time. And I say, oh, this is who I am in this situation. But identity is actually quite fluid. So who are you if you have all these different identities? You're not your body, maybe. You're not your feelings. All right, let's see how to explain this. Hmm. We have this very limited sense of ourself. Okay, where's the cartoon? Shows two generals striding down the hall of the Pentagon with all their medals on and one says to the other, it really shook me, I can tell you. I dreamed the meek inherited the earth. Right? (laughs) We get identified with our views and our roles and then we get in conflict with somebody else who's identified with a different view, right? Um, and Or we get identified in modern society. Um, you know, we are a political person, or we're a, you know, a healer, or we're, we've got all these different roles. We're consumers. Julia Childs writes, in department stores, so much unnecessary kitchen equipment is bought indiscriminately by men who simply went in for, uh, by those who simply went in for men's underwear, right? And we get caught up and the whole society's, okay, now you're a consumer. That's who you are. Kind of boring, really. So who are we? Ram Das again, thinking of him. He was teaching after coming back from India in the early days when he was Baba Ram Das and he had a beard and white robes and beads and things like that and doing the whole guru thing, um, teaching these beautiful mantras and Hindu practices. There was a woman sitting in the front row, raised her hand, she said, Ram Das, Ram Das, what's with the Hindu stuff? Aren't you Jewish? Come on already. And Ram Das said, well, yes, as a matter of fact, I was born Jewish, he said. And I love the Jewish tradition. He said, I love, you know, the Kabbalah and all the states of consciousness, the different levels that it describes. And I love the Hasidic masters who are like great Zen masters. And he was bar mitzvahed, as was I, you know. And then he paused for a minute and he said, but remember, I'm only Jewish on my parents' side. <laughs> and of course, it was, he's very witty at that time. But it was more than just witty. You are not limited by your family. And if you haven't learned that yet, I hope you learn it. Doesn't mean you can't love, love those people. <laughs> but it's not, you know, that doesn't define who you are any more than Nelson Mandela coming out of 27 years in Robben Island prison with such magnanimity and graciousness and uh, compassion and, and courage, you know, that he changed not only South Africa but the imagination of the world. They can put your body in prison, but no one can imprison your spirit, who you really are. And so liberation, or freedom, is an invitation to step from the body of fear, from that separate sense of self, and to see that you're something more than that. That you're timeless. That awareness itself, 
Okay, let's do a little quick experiment. In a few seconds when I tell you to, I want you to do whatever you can to stop being aware. You can grit your teeth, close your eyes, wiggle your tongue, whatever you have to do, stop being aware. Stop it, okay? One, on your mark, it's set, do it. You can't do it, can you? Awareness is here. I mean, there's all these changing breath and sound and sensation and and experiences and roles that come and go. But it turns out that underneath that is consciousness itself, is a timeless awareness that's here independent of your body. And you know it when you go into the when you go into the bathroom and look at yourself in the mirror, you will notice at certain points that you've aged, right? Come on. It starts to wrinkle and sag and lose its fur in some places and grow it in other places. It does all this weird stuff. It does. How did you get in there? Anyway, but there it is and you're looking and okay, it's sagging there and whatever. Um, but the, the interesting thing is that you also have the experience that you don't necessarily feel older. You know that experience? And that moment is because you see that the body has aged, but who you are isn't that body. Who you are is this witnessing awareness saying, hmm, getting along in this incarnation, aren't we? You know? And that's actually what's happening. And that moment, there's a, there's a revelation and a shift of identity from being caught in who you think you are to being that observer, that witness that says, my teacher Ajahn Chah called it resting in the one who knows in awareness itself. Now when you rest in awareness, it doesn't mean that you still don't have to care for this body and relationships and drive on the right side of the street and stop at red lights and go on green lights and so forth. It is, again, as our dear friend Ramdas likes to say, <clears throat> you need to remember your Buddha nature and your social security number. You know, that, that we live in this paradox as human beings that's both personal and immediate and you have to respect it. But it's not the, not the whole game. In fact, it's not the deepest truth at all. And something in you knows this. And it knows in the simplest way when you come and sit in meditation um, and you have those moments where you're able to become the witness of experience, where you can see your life with a dollop of mercy and some tenderness and loving kindness and loving awareness and let go of being so caught in those worries or those thoughts or those plans. It's not that they're not there or your doubt, or your restlessness that comes. All those kind of things will come. And you bow and say, oh, this is restlessness. I know you. And after a while, it doesn't have so much power over you. And this is doubt. I don't know, you know, this and that. Everybody doubts. Oh, that's the doubting mind. Thank you. And then judging. Okay, you're not doing it right. You're not a good meditator. And actually, you're not very good at other things either. And I have a whole list to tell you. And you say, oh, the judging mind, thank you for your opinion. You know you know who recorded that. We won't talk about them. And you start to realize that you can trust awareness to hold all of this, including, as I was talking with my dear friend Robert, including as you die. And as you do, there comes a growing sense of trust or ease, joy, um, the capacity somehow to be present for the 10,000 joys and sorrows that make up this mysterious human incarnation. I mean, how do we get in here? I talk about it, you know, the hole at one end in which you stuff dead plants and animals regularly and grind them up and glug them through the tube, right? In these weird protuberances, mine stick out quite a lot, you know. Ears and eyeballs, come on, it's bizarre. (laughs) And then you you make love. Now, making love is 
totally great thing. It's weird. You have to admit, it just is. Touching, licking, you know, and with all those great things, fluids, all of that. I mean, come on. And there you are in the middle of go, wow, this is fabulous. And isn't this weird at the same? Because it is. It is. How did you get into that body? And who are you? You know, are you the animal body? Is that who you are? And as you get quieter, again, and there comes the capacity to be at ease with the paradox of your human life, um, things start to kind of unfold and open. All right, I'll tell you a story, a kind of fairy tale about meditation. It turned out that in a kingdom some time ago, um, there was a, a, a beautiful princess, as happens in these stories. But her father had borrowed a bunch of money from the hedge fund guys <laughs> um, and um, was indebted, actually, to the local dragon who had a great hoard of gold and her father needed it to, for some reason to build a new castle or pay his army or whatever. Um, and he wasn't able to pay the dragon back. So the dragon came and said, you know, time to pay up. And the king said, I, I can't do that. And the dragon said, well, our agreement was that if you couldn't pay up, then I could ask you one wish for something. And what I wish is the hand of your daughter in marriage. The poor guy, the poor king, his heart sank. Like, how could you marry your daughter to a dragon? <sighs> he didn't know what to do. He called the soothsayers. They weren't very helpful. And then someone whispered and said, oh no, go to the wise woman. So he sent his daughter. He said, you go find this great wise woman, you know, who lived on the outskirts of the kingdom, and maybe she can help you. So the daughter went and she said, marry the dragon, no problem. But the daughter said, yeah, he's big and, you know, fiery and scaly and ugly and, you know, I don't want to marry a dragon. And the old woman said, listen, it's going to work out, trust me. You know, it's a fairy tale, right? But you have to do something really important and that, then it will work out. She said, what? I'll do anything. You need to buy ten wedding gowns and wear one on top of another. Now, I've learned, having a daughter, that the way weddings work, it actually doesn't matter as much who you marry. It's the dress that really matters. I have learned that, right? But nevertheless... In this case, it wasn't the dress, it was the dresses, all ten dresses, right? So she said, and you wear these to your wedding, and on the wedding night, then, and she whispered some instructions. So there they have the wedding, there's the dragon, there's the princess, there's the king weeping, you know, the whole, how weddings go. And um, then they go into the bridal chamber for their, for their night, um, and the dragon says, "Ah, oh, wonderful! Now we get to, now we get to become really intimate and make love. Um, would you please take off your dress, your, your 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 wedding gown?" And the princess says, "Of course I will, but I have one request of you: that when I take off my wedding gown, I'd like you also to take off a layer of your garments." which, of course, was the dragon's scaly skin, like a snake. And so she removed a gown, and the dragon shed his skin. And then he looked at her, and she had another gown on. <laughs> and she said, well, I have more gowns, so we have to do this for a while if you'd like to see me undress. Now I take off another gown, and you promised you have to take off another layer of skin. And as she took the ten gowns off, each time it got harder and harder and the dragon had to use his claws and take off one more layer and one more layer of skin. And finally he began to change form, as happens in fairy tales, and she took off the last gown and he pulled the last layer of dragon skin and who should appear but a prince who'd been enchanted. You know how these things go. 
And he said, oh, you've done exactly the right thing to free me from my belief that I was a dragon, right? His identity with dragonness or whatever. And then they had a great time. We won't go there. Okay. But this is something like meditation. Not in the sense that you have to use claws and pull things apart, but that as you sit, if you stay present, the body wants to release. It does. The things that are held tight start to let go. Um, and the feelings want to let go. All the unfinished things in your heart, if you let yourself sit quietly, the tears you haven't shed, the longing that you have, the love that wasn't expressed, um, the fears that you have, all those things start to show themselves because you're willing to be present and you let the skins that covered them open. Your body, your emotions, and your thoughts too. Praise and blame and judgment. And you start to see, oh, that's just the mind doing its thing. And instead of, one of the problems that you have is you actually take your thoughts seriously. It's, um, yeah, it's not actually a very healthy thing to do. I'm looking for a story here. When my daughter Cindy was in first grade, we took a trip to California to visit my family. While we were there, she lost a tooth. She ran into the kitchen to show me and asked if the tooth fairy could fly this far. My mom shot back a look of concern and later suggested indulging such fantasies. I was teaching my child not to trust adults. Wasn't Cindy going to feel betrayed when I pointed out when she found out the truth? So I was concerned about this. And when we were home, the next time Cindy lost a tooth and she came in bubbling with excitement, um, as I put her to sleep, she had a question. How does the tooth fairy get in? Through the window, I explained. Well, shouldn't we unlock it then, she asked. Oh, I do that right before I go to bed, I replied. Why does the tooth fairy want everybody's teeth, she asked. I took a deep breath, considered my mother's concern. Cindy would soon figure the truth anyway, so I told my inquisitive seven-and-a-half-year-old that in fact I was the tooth fairy. She cried hard. I apologized and explained that she was getting to an age at which it was more important for me to be honest with her than to play imaginary games. We cuddled for a while. She stopped crying. She had one last question. What do you wear? (laughs) It's really hard to let go of our ideas and thoughts. It is on our beliefs. Personal about people, our political beliefs, our, you know, social beliefs. And when you start to sit and quiet the mind, you begin to see that just as feelings and emotions will come sad and happy and, and joyful and, and anxious and, um, you know, agitation, and, and you start to realize that you can tolerate them. You do what the neuroscientists call expanding the window of tolerance, which in the old days was called opening your heart to your life. Um, and you grow that capacity, and then you see the mind tell its stories, and you don't have to believe them all. You say, well, that's an interesting story. But you don't have to be so identified with them, with the feelings and the thoughts and so forth. And then it begins to give you a sense of choice. Instead of being caught in everything that comes, there's that kind of spaciousness that says, oh yeah, here we are and maybe I don't have to believe that doubt or judgment, or that anxiety, or that fear, or confusion. Thank you for, you know, trying to take care of me. I'm okay for now. I appreciate, you know, you're trying to take care of me. I'm all right. And this sense of graciousness and ease and flexibility grows. Also, it makes you more empathetic to other people who are caught in their stories. You may have noticed some of them around you. The Buddha said those who cling to their views and opinions go around the world annoying people. 
That's sort of one of his jokes, I think. But there comes in your practice of loving awareness, there comes the sense that who you are is not just the content of experience. That you become instead the witness to it, the consciousness that says, oh yeah, this too. This is really who you are. My teacher, Ajahn Chah, who had practiced for a long time as a young monk, very ardently in the jungles and the forests of Thailand and Laos and the caves and so forth, and had all kinds of wild experiences, insights, and also a lot of struggles with his own mind and with the tigers and, you know, the elements and all those kind of things. Um, and then open to beautiful meditative states. And finally he went to see the greatest master of the day, another Ajahn named Ajahn Man, and told him all about his experiences, said, I need some advice, what should I do next? Here's the insights, here's the samadhi, here's the light and vision, here's the, you know, the things I've been through, here's the... And uh, the master looked back and said, Cha, you missed the point. Those are just experiences. They're like movies that come on the screen. A war movie, a documentary, a romantic comedy, you know, a cartoon. You'll see them all, he said. Those are just the movies. He said, there's really only one question that matters. Who's watching the movies? Who are you? Turn your attention back from the content of experience, even as you're listening to me now. Who is it that's hearing these words? And even though it's a sort of strange thing to do because we're so used to looking out, he said, turn back and you will find the space of awareness that one that wouldn't go away when we tried to do that little practice of having, rest in that awareness and become sikibuto, become the knowing, become the one who knows, the witness to it all. And there is the place you will find the real freedom that you seek. So as you practice, then you realize that you can enter different identities and you need to. You know, when you go to the bank, you have to pretend to be that person that has that bank account. <laughs> right? Mullah Nasruddin, the famous Sufi holy man and fool, went into the bank to cash a check one day and they said, could you please identify yourself? <laughs> he reached in his pocket, pulled out a small mirror and said, yep, that's me, all right. <laughs> you know. So you, you, can, you can enter your identities... Um, but as Robert was saying, he said, I know that I'm not this body. There, He said, my body's falling apart. It's not going to last many more weeks probably. That isn't who I am. I know that that's true. Like Thich Nhat Hanh describing it in this very beautiful and deep way. So the goal of meditation isn't so much to like improve your personality. Yeah, I could use a little improving, I know, but it's not really, it's not to perfect yourself. It's to perfect your love and to remember that you're so much bigger than all the small self-limitations, that your awareness itself that was born into this body and that you can rest in it and it gives you a kind of graciousness and ease and a sense of trust that you can be here for this life. So many stories that I brought to read to you or tell you. Trust, this is from Dina Metzger activist, poet, and she's been an anti-nuclear activist, a peace activist her whole life. She was also a woman who, mm, some decades ago, had a mastectomy and then had a giant dragon tattooed across her chest. And there was a famous photograph because it was circled all over. She had one hand in the air, one breast here, and one dragon there. You know, and a huge smile on her face like, okay, this is who I am now. Quite a remarkable. 
And she writes as a poet, give me everything mangled and bruised and I will make a light of it to make you weep and we will have rain and we will begin again. Because what starts to happen as you let yourself step back and, and rest in the awareness that is who you are is you see that life wants to renew itself. That yes, you will go through times that are difficult. Anybody not have those? Right? And you're, you're a survivor. Your ancestors survived so many things and they gave that to you. And you know how to do it. And you let go of certain identities and new ones will arise. And you let go of certain things that you've been and cling to. That's not who you are. And then something else will come. As surely as uh, the rains that will come this fall and these brown hills, you know, I love that day when you, after the first rains, when you see the little green grass sticking up in between all those, you know, dry, dead grass that's there, that underneath there's this little carpet and it absolutely comes every time. And you start to realize that you can trust life, that actually you are life, as Thich Nhat Hanh said, I'm not separate from my mother, I'm life now coming in this form, but I'm actually part of the whole web of life. Alice Walker put it one way, she said, one day I was sitting there like a motherless child, which I was, and it come to me that feeling of being a part of everything, and I knew if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed, and I laugh and I cry, I run all around the house, in fact, when it happened, you can't miss it. And you know it, you know it from times of making love, or listening to a magnificent piece of music, or walking in the high mountains, or taking some sacred medicine, if that's your path, you know, or just looking really deeply in the eyes of another being, or being there when a child is born, out of your body, or sitting there when it happens, or holding the hand of somebody who dies. This will happen, by the way, just in case you've forgotten. It will happen. And that mysterious moment when spirit leaves the body and then it's just, you know, a corpse. It's not who that person was. It's an extraordinary moment. It's silent and huge at the same time. And the gates between the worlds open. And it's silent like a falling star and yet something opens. I mean, who are we? And when you meditate, you start to realize that you can rest in this timeless awareness. That it's a gift that's given to you. And a trust starts to grow. That you can be here for this world and care for it. Aldous Huxley writes, An idolatrous religion is one in which time is substituted for eternity. Endless progress is the devil's work demanding human sacrifice on an enormous scale. An idolatrous religion is one in which time is substituted for eternity. So the, you know, the question is not the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity. Can we feel ourselves in the turning of the world of the galaxies that we're a part of. And that perspective gives us graciousness and space and a certain kind of ease and surrender and a deep trust. Like Pablo Neruda writes, you can pick all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring. That there's something bigger than anything that human beings can do. And it doesn't mean we don't have to take care with climate change. But there's something vast that we're a part of. In the end. And you can feel that you're being fed by the world. And live in it and, 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 and love it. So a story for you as we get near the end here. This comes from... Barbara Kingsolver, um, wonderful writer. 
And she writes about how on a cool October day in the oak-forested hills of Loristan, which is just in the north of Iran, where the huge mountains are, um, a child was lost. The way the story goes, it's a nomadic tribe of people, or the Lori people. Um, They were tending their flocks, um, and they'd given a few of the young children in, in the charge of an older child, as has always been done among their people. And all of a sudden, one of the teenagers comes running back down the hill and says, I can't find him, I can't find him. And it turns out that one of the littlest children, who could walk some but was really pretty small, was gone. And they all run up to look and they look everywhere and try everything they can. And the whole village gets mobilized. We can't find this child. And it's near the end of the day. She brings back the other three children. And they, they get torches and they go around and they cannot find the child. And everyone is heartbroken. And how can she survive that night out in the cold mountains with not many clothes, you know, this little girl? And the parents are frightened and weeping and no one knows what to do. And then someone said they'd seen a bear. And they say, oh no, not a bear, not a bear. And so just as dawn comes the next morning, because in their torchlight they couldn't find the child, um, they go up out into the forest carrying, you know, what they can, looking everywhere. And finally they say, well, Maybe we have to walk further. He was such, she was such a little child, but maybe, maybe she walked up to where the caves are. So they go up to the area of the forest that meets the face of the mountains, and there are these caves, and they start walking along them, heartbroken. And the baby's really still small. And at the mouth of the fourth or fifth cave, nobody knows, they hear a child cry. And they can't imagine, and cautiously they look in the darkness, and ominously they smell bare. But the little girl is in there, crying and alive. And so they peek inside the cave and wait, and it smells dank. And then they they see against the wall not a dark hollow but the dark rounded shape of a thick furred quiescent she-bear lying against the wall. And then they see the child and the bear is curled against her protecting her from the fierce smelling intruders that have come. (laughs) They light their torches, they make sounds, they bang on things and they manage somehow somehow, to scare the bear enough that it comes bounding out of the cave. And they ran into the cave and grabbed the child. Now, she says, I went back, I found a friend who speaks Farsi, another who spoke Arabic. I wanted the original story because what happened was that this little girl was alive, unscurled, un unscarred and perfectly well and it had been three days of searching well fed and smelling of milk the bear was nursing the child how could this happen she said I wanted to know I heard all the accounts how was it possible that a huge hungry bear would take a pitifully small delicate human child to her breast rather than make her into food but she was a mammal, a mother. She was lactating, so she must have had young of her own, maybe lost one, killed. So she was driven by the pure chemistry of maternity to take the small, warm neonate to her belly and hold him there gently. You could read this story and declare impossible even though many witnesses have sworn it was true. 
or you could read the story and think of how warm lives are drawn to one another in cold places. Think of the unquenchable, unconquerable force of a mother's love. The fact of the DNA code that we share in its great majority with other mammals. You could think of all that and say, of course the bear nursed the baby. He was crying, she was crying from hunger and the bear had milk. Small wonder. You too are being fed by the universe. You are by the fields and the, the fruit of the trees and all that's grown and those who carry it to you. You are in this web of life that's feeding you and holding you and caring for this incarnation that you have. And as you get quiet and listen and there comes a sense of mystery and eternity, here we are for a short time in this incarnation, in this human body, there grows somehow a deepening sense of trust, of connection, of love, because it's us all together. And a kind of fearlessness that we know we're not just the limited circumstances of our life, that we're so much more than that. You know, that you are a child of the Spirit, that you carry that secret beauty that Thomas Merton saw shining in the eyes of every single person that walked by at Fourth and Walnut in Louisville, Kentucky on that, you know, spring afternoon that they put a a national monument there to a mystical experience. You know it in some way. And when you know it, it changes everything. It's not that you still don't have to go to work and, you know, change diapers and all that stuff. You do. But there's a kind of freedom that comes where you can play, trust, love anyway, delight, remember, all of those things. So I feel a kind of gratitude that we have this capacity to awaken, to recognize who we are and to see each other this way. And if somebody says, well, why would I meditate? Yes, it's good for stress reduction, right? Maybe it helps you with weight loss or whatever you want to do. That's fine. But it's something so much deeper and more beautiful than that. It's quieting the mind and opening the heart and being willing to live in the mystery of life in this way. So let's sit for a moment.
And as you get quiet and remember, you can sense in the end that what really matters is love. What else? What else could there be? I was given a lovely work of art this evening by a little girl who came up, expresses something of what we're talking about, that spirit born into each one of you. It's still in there, that child of the spirit. It is. So um, it's time to go out in the parking lot and drive politely because there's lots of people there. And to go out in the beautiful summer evening, maybe before you do, you could just look around for a moment, take a 30 seconds, and catch the eyes of somebody and see that secret beauty that's there, because it is, you know. And then carry something of benefit and blessing as you leave the temple. Thank you for coming. Good night.